0: Italian Wine Podcast Chin Chin with Italian Wine People Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast My name is Monty and My guest today is Tim Banks Tim is Sales and Marketing Director for Ornellaia. Welcome Thank you, thank you for having me so, Tim, let's start with you, and then we'll go on to Onalaya. Briefly, your career history.
1: Briefly. Um, in a nutshell, before you get, get to nutshell, Onalaya. Well, before I came to Onalaya, I was basically living in France. Um, Are you French? No, I'm English, very much English, although I have a French wife. Okay. But um, after university or during university, found myself falling in love with France, everything French, food and wine, of course, uh, women as well. Um they get edited. <laughs> and uh, slowly but surely, sort of went from cycling holidays to, uh, to working for Hennessy Cognac during the summers, which was nice. As a salesman or as a... No, just as a tour guide in their, in their uh, cellars. So I got to learn about great French produce, the uh, luxury business. Is mm-hmm. your wife
0: from Gascony then?
1: No, she's from Toulouse. Okay, so not far away, mm-hmm. but not in not from Cognac. That's fair. but we lived in Cognac for a long time, where I worked for several uh, companies: Hennessy, Remy Martin, Quazi, and then got uh, picked up to come over to Tuscany. And they uh, so picked up? What was a helicopter? Did they? and sent a helicopter over and just. They, they, they sent me an email sort of, saying, "Do you anybody know anybody that would like to do this job?" And I said. Uh, do they need to speak Italian? They said no. I said, well, I don't have any friends then, and here's my CV. So a couple of months later, there I was in, uh, in Tuscany. So you've effectively, yeah. by hook or by crook, you've, you've worked for what we would call luxury brands. Yeah, uh, not by design. Just, um, I needed to work in the summers for my internship at university. I looked at that job, thought that would be nice. Applied for it, didn't get it. Applied for it the next year, got it. Did it for three years. And then um, a small stint in London, working for a public relations agency, working on champagne and Harvey Nichols and other brands. Again, luxury. just luxury by chance. What were you studying at university in France? French? European business with French, German and marketing. Right, okay. So you've got the toolbox and languages, numbers and the business and the spiel yeah Yeah. and so over the time i've worked on it a bit and now i have to uh, i've had to do it all in italian as well so uh right well let's give me some
0: spiel on uh i said spiel there because you studied (laughs) german and i'm gonna give me some spiel on ornolaya what is ornolaya who owns it where is it what is it what what is it a red wine white wine sparkling wine
1: okay so ornolaya is uh, a red wine mainly from uh, tuscany and the difference being that it's on the coast in Tuscany. So it's just south of Pisa. It's uh, a wine which many people would know as a super Tuscan because it was one of these wines that arrived in the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, went against the, sort of the, the, the rule book, let's say, and uh, started having international varietals uh, such as Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot and other ways of uh, looking at the wines, which didn't fit into the, uh, the DOC rules, the, uh, the, the very strict quality rules for the the wines from Italy uh, and Tuscany in French there were the, the appellations in front in Italy the denominazioni. So it's a bit like a Bordeaux
0: top quality Bordeaux chateau adding Syrah to its red, for example. Well yes, I mean the Except it's it was um permitted by the regulations but instead of being labeled as a site specific wine it had to be labeled just as a Toscan, Tuscan Tuscan red that's right vino kind of
1: di tavola table wine even so what was the first official vintage for Ornellaia it was 1985 and it, so who owns it it is owned by the Frescobaldi family mm-hmm. and uh, along with their other estates in Tuscany and one in Friuli were they the original owners of the brand no it was uh, Ludovico Antinori who created uh, the estate in 1981 he started planting 85 the first vintage and then towards the end of the 90s, there was, a, I would say, an exchange or a, a transfer of ownership from Ludovico through the Mondavi family to the Frescovaldi family. And now it's all owned by the, the Frescovaldi family. I would say we act as a, a winery in its own right. Everything is done at the estate, all the vineyards are around the estate, the, uh, the bottling, all the, all the offices are there. It's very much a, an all in one uh, winery based on the coast in Tuscany.
0: So Frescobaldi, for those of you that don't know, is a very famous name in Italian wine, and the first Frescobaldi wine dealer was about 1,300 and something, is
1: that correct? Yeah, I think we're coming over to to 30 generations. Um, So who's the boss now? What's his name? The CEO is uh, Giovanni Gueres de Filicaya, but our president is Ferdinando Frescobaldi. Okay. Yeah. So is it the same branch as Lamberto Frescobaldi or a different branch of the family? Exactly. Lamberto is the president of the group. This is the same family. Lamberto, I believe, I don't want to get this wrong, but I believe is the 29th generation. I hope I've got that right. <laughs> I've got his mobile number, so I'll, okay, I'll, we can check that. So what are the pressures? Obviously,
0: you're used to working with luxury, top quality, five-star, whatever you want to call it, brands. Mm-hmm. When you're out selling it or presenting it or promoting it,
1: what are the do's and what are the don'ts? Well, I think that the, the most important important thing for us starts always in the vineyard with the, the, the territory around Bulgari and all the wine makers work and the vineyard work and everything has to be perfect. Then when we go out selling the wine, marketing, uh, communicating, I think what we have to do is try to live up to the quality of the wine and not let it down and make sure that we're being coherent, we're speaking in the right way to the right people that also we are defending, I would say, the image of our brand. And uh, it is once you've worked hard to make such a great product, you don't want people to be uh, uh, misusing it or mistreating it or uh, taking it for granted. So uh, there's a bit of uh, firm but fair in the market. And also you have to, if you say you're going to do something, you do it, you back it up. So and such we I mean, give an example though. So for example, if um, we manage, um, we were in the luxurious position of, of being able to allocate our wines even before the even produced almost we know more or less where everything is going to be sold and uh, distributed around the world and it, it is a, a, quite a lot of power you, you can wield by making sure that your importers are actually uh, doing the job that they've also agreed to do but I think it's important when something's not done correctly and, and not to the level that it should be that we sort of bring that up and we talk about it and we, we, base, we base our relations on long term partnerships so I mean, give me an example of something without real specifics I mean, I would have thought, you know, if I was in
0: a wine shop or a wine bar in London, for example, mm-hmm. you know, I think I've worked in a shop where we did sell liar. What would arouse your eye? Or what would cause you to knock on the door of the shop and say, hey, Monty, I really, can I just make a suggestion? Please don't do that
1: with the liar? I think when, uh, when your customers have paid, let's say it's £150 for a bottle of wine, You've been working with uh, your customers, your clients, and sometimes there's a a tendency that people want to make a quick buck. And so they'll buy in a bigger quantity, knock the price down, and give away uh, what they see as a a great value, uh, a deal, let's say. To try and sell something
0: else. If you buy
1: 100 bottles of Chateau Plonk, we'll
0: give you a bottle of Ornolio at half price or something. Well, yeah, that, some, that's a pretty it, simple it, example,
1: but that kind of thing. That kind of thing. And something which destroys the value of the brand and the, the, the value of the product, which someone else has, has paid full price for. So it'd be unfair for us to leave one person to discount and another person to uh, to, to follow sell and sell it at what we believe is the correct, correct value. So uh, it's about protecting that, for example. We also don't want to be uh, flooding the market, so it's important for us to know that what we've sold in to the market is also being bought and sold and, and drunk, and we want people to drink our wines. So you have to have a very close relationship with your distributors. Very close indeed. And for example, if you take the, our Swiss importer, he had agreed to take the first vintage even before it was produced, and we're still working together. We don't have a contract. We have a a gentleman's agreement and it's been like that for, this is 27, no, next year will be 30 vintages. And we have examples of that all around the world. So uh, I think in Poland it's 22 years and South Korea it's 26 years. It's uh, it's a way of doing business which is uh, built on sort of mutual respect, hard work, but also doing things properly. So if I'm a consumer and I'm just a, I'm a nut for
0: wine, okay, mm-hmm. and I, my dream is to either buy a bottle of Ornolaya or get close to Ornolaya or, or even another famous brand, How close can I get to the brand itself to you know, can I come and visit the winery? Are there any events where you do tastings, tutored mm-hmm. tastings, where I could maybe say, look, I can't afford maybe, say, £150 or $200 for a bottle, but I could probably spend £50 or $50 to go to an event where I can at least taste
1: it. Certainly, certainly. This is, a, I think, one of the things that we find important is that we have to remain very approachable and uh, open and friendly. And we, we're all people at the estate, and we love what we do. We would like to share that passion. You're, you're not wearing a tie, for example. No, today. well, we're in it. We're in Italy, okay. so, uh, yeah, it's... Uh don't often wear ties nowadays, which is great. <laughs> Sometimes I've got to look good, but uh, no, I think that the the openness is very important. Uh, you can visit the uh, the estate; it's by appointment. So we have a, a team of people that looks after everyone, but we also there again. We want to make sure that those who come to the estate get the experience that they're uh, that they're expecting. And uh, in terms of tastings around the world, we try to participate in many different uh, events with either James Suckling or Decanter, Wine Spectator, New York Experience, and get the wines actually into the lips, onto the lips of people who want to taste it. Perhaps people might not have the means to, to buy a bottle of Onalaya, but then it's the way of discovering a brand. It's a discovering the other wines that we have for the second wine or the third wine, the white wines. And it's not just about Onalaya, but uh, everything starts at the top. What's the difference between working in France in the drinks business and working in Italy in the drinks business. Oh, gosh. Um, You're not going to leave. Um, the door's <laughs> locked, by the way, so you can't get out until you answer the question. Perhaps in France there's a little more formality, a little bit more also theatre around the wines, a bit of fanfare. Snobbery? Snobbery. I'm not sure if it's snobbery. I think it's, a, it's an attitude, it's a behaviour. Over-reverence? Perhaps, in certain cases. But at the same time, they've shown the world how to sell the wines at the great value. The Italians have got certain things to learn in, in respect to sort of bringing the value to the wines and the, the great wines that they have. But also, they have to bring their own style and this openness, this pleasure, this joy of life. It's very present when you go to Italy. You go out to dinner and you you enjoy it. You 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 have fantastic food, which you which you might not have in, in France at the same price. That's for sure. But you have fantastic food, and it's it's not uh, it's less less formal. It's less formal and it's more fun and. You you spend more time with each other rather than sort of analyzing the, the what's in the plate. I mean, it's always so, good. So how difficult is it for a
0: brand like Ornola, which has got the fun side, the Italian mm-hmm. background, and then there is that sort of formality of a blue chip brand. How do you get that balance right? You don't want to be over familiar with a real sort of buffed and tufted and kind of buttoned up consumer. But then mm-hmm. again, you don't want to be flippant.
1: Exactly. With I think you have to listen to your customers. That's one thing. I think you also have to be true to yourself. Don't be who you're not. I think people at a certain price range also expect you to act in a certain way. So there are certain rules. You know, if you go round to your grandfather's house, you wouldn't put your feet on the table for dinner. It's the same thing in the wine world. You have to uh, adapt yourself to the, the the market you're in, whether it be in China, whether it be in America, whether it be in in England, even in Belgium, for example. Belgium is very different to France, but you have to adapt, and you have to listen. You have to be, I would say, you have to sort of pay attention. I think, but at the same time, you've got to make sure. That you're doing it right, and you are projecting the right image for your for your wine, and you're you're following up really what everything has been done in in the vineyard.
0: So, what is the future for sort of um, as a generic term luxury brands? When everybody's talking about millennials, I know natural wine, wine with lower alcohol, uh, that kind of thing, and, and and value and these you know auction wines, if you like. Mm. We're not interested in them. We're never going to buy them. We can never find them. We can't afford them. They're totally irrelevant to us. And it's the millennial sort of creating, in some people's view, the buzz about wine at the moment.
1: I think that uh, the world is so diverse and is going to get more diverse as as, uh, as the years go by. The wealth in the world is also going to continue to grow. So there are going to be more consumers at both ends, whether they're super rich or just every day. I think that there's going to be a, these wines in the same ways that natural wines appear to certain people, our wines will appeal, appeal to others. Uh, there's a lot talking talked about uh, millennials because I think people have a very difficult time understanding what it is they're really, really interested in. But I think you have to look at it the other way around, and so you have to make yourself interested because of who you are, what you are, and what you do. If you haven't got the quality, that's one thing. But if you look like fake, fake news, that's another thing. I think you can only be true to yourself, and, and if you're consistent, if you are being yourself, and also you have a great wine, then I think you, you you have a good chance of succeeding.
0: Some of the white wines from the Tuscan coast are outstanding. Will there ever be a white Ornelia?
1: There is. Okay. Ah, uh, Tell okay. me about it. So this is something that uh, part of our, I say, brand ethos or our DNA is that we've always looked to, to challenge, even from the beginning. Being born as a super Tuscan puts us on a different path, and to most wines in, in Italy. We also have kept this, uh, this flexibility in the way we work, and, and we don't want to get stuck down, because we can do things, and there's so much we can do. Bulgaria is only 30 years old as, a, as an appellation. Not everything has been tried yet. If you compare to what's been done in, in Bordeaux for over the last 150, 200 years, they've got a wealth of, of experience that we were only just scratching the surface. So immediately, the red wines turned out to be fantastic, and so everyone just planted red. But over the last years, with the arrivals, especially of Axel Heinz, our winemaker in 2005 at the estate from Bordeaux, even though white varietals, especially Sauvignon Blanc, had always been planted on the estate since 82, it had never been a focus wine. And in 2000, 2002, they, they grabbed up the vines and changed everything to Merlot, but not everything worked. So some of the of the, the vines had half of it was uh, where the graft did not work. Half of it was still Sauvignon Blanc, and half of it was uh, Merlot. And those would be green harvested or Chucked away at the end of the year. Um, but when Axel arrived, he said, no, those look interesting. I'll try that. Made a wine, served it at the, the, the harvest lunch that year. You know, three weeks, you know, sort of not Beaujolais Nouveau, but Bulgari Nouveau Blanc. Bianco, And um, that first uh, fresh white wine was enough to convince everything that everybody that we should uh, move ahead and look at the white wine again. So he started planting, searching for new sites, looking at things. So and there was already some Sauvignon. Which other varieties? Uh, at the beginning it was mainly Sauvignon. But then he started also planting some Vermentino, which is uh, quite normal for the area. Some Viognier, which works very well down, down in our area. Not Semillon, as some people would expect. Uh, uh, they see a Bordeaux red blend. They say, oh well, there'd be a border white, so Semillon, Sauvignon Blanc, but no, Viognier is much better, like in Southern Rhone. We're on the Mediterranean, after all. And so we've also been playing with some uh, Verdicchio, which is from the Marche region on the other side of uh, Italy, and a little touch of Petit Mansin, which was uh, left by uh, the previous winemaker, Thomas Duroux, who's now at Chateau Palmer, and he left that as a as a welcome present for Axel. It's beautiful sweet white wine that we make now, a late harvest. But now we have, um, after seven years of uh, trial and error, with uh, the white wine which we call Poggio Allegazzi dell'Onalaya. Just repeat that one. Poggio Allegazzi dell'Onalaya. So, that so what, would does be, what does Allegazzi it mean? It would be Magpie Slope. If it was an Australian white no. from Onalaya. Magpie, <laughs> magpie Slope. But now in 2013, we came out with the first vintage of uh, Onalaya Bianco. So Onalaya, uh, the level of Onalaya, but it's expression in white. And then this has really set us off on a new path to look at whites seriously, to really sort of start growing and more vineyards, either regrafting or planting, uh, looking for new sites. Sites where, for example, in the past reds didn't work because they had too much cover from the forest or they were the wrong side of a hill or whatever. We're finding that if we plant those into white, the magic of Bulgari creates some great, great wines. Just final question what is a typical blend for lion now? I and mean, has it changed over the years? There has been a slight change, very, very slight over time. The original Oralaya blend was 65% Cabernet Sauvignon. So it's always and still is driven by Cabernet Sauvignon with 25% Merlot and the rest was uh, Cabernet Franc. In 2004, the denomination added Petit Verdot. So we are now, I would say, about 55 60% Cabernet Sauvignon, big dollop of Merlot, and then a touch of Petit Verdot and Cabernet Franc. And that's, uh, I think that all remains. But the uh, Merlot component has grown over the years as we understand that. It's a fantastic region, even for Merlot.
0: Great. Okay. Tim Banks, Sales and Marketing Director for Oralaya. Thanks very much for coming in today and telling us about this iconic brand and uh, developments there with the white wine. That certainly sounds very interesting.
1: uh, It's very exciting. It's a great place to work. Nice to meet you. Thank you. And you?
0: Follow Italian Wine Podcast on Facebook and Instagram.